Let us turn in our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen carefully as we now hear from God's word to us, his people. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Bow with me in prayer as we begin. Father, we gather tonight not as people who have answers in ourselves, who have solutions in our hearts. We don't come as people who deliver promises. We come as people who are desperately in need of your bountiful provision. And we thank you, O God, that you indeed have given us everything, all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I pray tonight that you would, for those of us who know you already by grace through faith, that you would strengthen our faith in this Christ. If there's any in our midst here tonight who do not yet know this Jesus, would tonight be the night of salvation. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. There are arguably two primary schools of parenting. There is the helicopter parent, sometimes today described as the snowplow parent. That works better in Philadelphia than it does in Houston. And then there's the other kind of parent, the free-range parent. Of course, the helicopter parent is controlling every move of the child. The free-range parent is one who lets his or her child do whatever he or she wants. I had a young couple years ago before we had children tell us that they believed the best policy was never to tell your children no. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, uh, After nearly 57 years of life, I would suggest to you that squirrels and rabbits have all been to the free-range school of parenting. After all, how many squirrels and rabbits do you see look both ways before they cross the street? (laughs) Just a few weeks ago, I was driving down the road in Philadelphia behind a car. I was going about 40 miles an hour. There was another car behind me, and I saw off the left, I saw a rabbit. And that rabbit ran right out, didn't look left or right, ran right out in front of the car in front of me. That car hit that rabbit. And that rabbit went flinging out from the backside of that car right in front of me. I thought it was the end of the rabbit until that rabbit sprung to his feet 
and ran right in front of my right front tire. I swerved, and I hear thump, thump, thump. I look out of the backside of my car. He springs to his feet yet again. And that rabbit then runs in front of the left front tire of the car behind me. Only to get away once again and make it to the other side of the street. Now, I don't know about you, but very much the last 18 to 20 months, our lives have felt very much like that rabbit. There has not been a time, I would suggest, in our own North American context in which we have been more frenzied, more divided, more polarized, and we look to the left and we look to the right and find ourselves with no solution. Some offer solutions. Some offer political solutions. Some are even well-intended solutions. But in the context of the corruption, the contention, the consternation, I would suggest to you tonight that this text before us tells us not to look to the left, not to look to the right, not to look for a via media, but to look for the alta via, the way above. Our eyes are lifted in this text to the Lord Jesus who is described in this text as the one who has passed through the heavens. Look again at verse 14 with me. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. When you hear about Jesus Christ as the great high priest, that might seem to you about as distant of an abstract concept as you could come up with. What is he talking about? How is Jesus our great high priest? Well, as you look at the pages of the Old Testament and see the work of the priests in the Old Testament, it was anything but abstract. In fact, it was a daily bloody mess. As you think of the work of the priest, what did they do? They sacrificed animals continually. And the book of Hebrews lays before us the fact that the blood of bulls and goats can never forgive sin. As you think of the task of the Old Testament priest under the priesthood of Aaron, one thing those priests never did was sit down. The reason they never sat down is because their work was never finished. One of the great arguments of the book of Hebrews is that this Jesus Christ, when he gave his life for sinners, he sat down. His priesthood was, as this text reminds us, his priesthood was a great high priesthood. In fact, as the book of Hebrews will argue, his priesthood completely trumps pardon the expression, trumps the Old Testament priesthood. Why? Because his life was given for his people once for all. In chapters 2 and 3, the argument in Hebrews is that this Jesus' priesthood was made valid 
because he was connected with us. We don't have time to read chapter 2, 10 and following. But you'll see there that Jesus is described as one who has taken flesh and blood like we. He's become like us in every respect. And he does so in order to be our high priest. So when you read here Jesus described as the great high priest, don't think about some distant figure who has nothing to do with you. It's quite the opposite. This articulation of Jesus as the great high priest means he is relevant for you. But then the text tells us something more. We have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That also might seem a bit strange. This, my brothers and sisters, is shorthand for success. Again, if you look at the opening chapters, chapters 1 through 4 of Hebrews, chapter 1 begins by describing this very son, this very great high priest, as the one whom the Father has sent from heaven. He has come from heaven to earth. He is the divine son, but he is also the human son of God. So this particular son is the one who has come from heaven, but here he's described as the one who has passed through the heavens, which is shorthand for the fact that this Jesus made his way through the wilderness, through his suffering, through his temptation, and every single time he obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. Why? So that he might be your adequate high priest. So when it says that he has passed through the heavens, imagine that this Jesus is laid before you as the victor. He is the one who has won the victory. And it is for this reason we see at the end of verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Why? We should confess this Christ just like we have done tonight, as we will do at the Lord's table. We will confess this high priest, the one who has passed through the heavens, as Richard said earlier, the one who lives to intercede for you even now. Why? Because he's the resurrected high priest. So we hold fast our confession of the victor who has passed through the heavens. This text tells you that this Jesus, to borrow a phrase from Star Trek, has gone where no man has gone before. He has made his way into the holy place. Chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us that he has gone into the holy place, guess what, as our forerunner. (laughs) What does a forerunner do? Well, we know he runs, but he also runs ahead, which means there are those who are behind. Guess why he goes in as our forerunner? So that he can take you and me to that very place of intimacy with the triune God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father but through him. When you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, when you confess this son, you are confessing the very son of God who has passed through the heavens as the victor, who has obeyed his father in the wilderness and has passed through the heavens, and he is leading many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. 
The word confession might not be a familiar one to some of you. The word confession literally means to say the same thing. It's to agree. Do you know that when you are confessing your faith together, when you're confessing this Jesus, you do it out loud because you do it with the people of God. You're in agreement with those who are next to you about who this son is and what he has done. But there's something more. (laughs) What happened at Jesus' baptism? What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? The Father looks down from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know that when you hold fast to your confession, you're not just agreeing with your brothers and sisters in church, you're agreeing with God about this Jesus, that he alone is the victor. The author of Hebrews is suggesting to us tonight as we prepare for this Lord's table that we are to rest in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. There's more. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let me provide a little bit of a historical backdrop. This particular letter is written to a group of Christians in the first century who are scattered. They are Jewish converts who have come to faith in Jesus Christ through apostolic ministry. Now, if you remember, what did the apostles preach? The apostles preached that Jesus, as Paul puts it, is the yes and amen to all the promises of God. So they have been told, they have heard the word of the apostles preached to them that this Jesus is this victor. And guess where they are? They're still in the wilderness. So that raises a question for them that it might raise for you. If I was to provide a paraphrase of chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, it would go like this. If Jesus is all that he is cracked up to be, why does my life stink? That's really what they're asking. And and they're tempted to go back to that which was familiar. They're tempted to let go of their confession of King Jesus. As they look to the left, as they look to the right, they see oppression. They endure suffering. They are under economic hardship. They are under political ostracization. They are suffering. And if Jesus is the victor, where is he? The author of Hebrews will remind them as he will remind us. What happened when Israel was let loose from Egypt? They were taken where? Into the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews will say, do you know what? We are living in an age and in a time that is analogous to the old covenant people of God's experience. Yes, they've been redeemed. They are no longer in Egypt. But they haven't yet crossed over into the promised land. 
And in the context of the wilderness, this is where there is real trial, real suffering, but they are called to hold fast their confession. And so, too, are we. If your life tonight is filled with suffering, with confusion, and if you can't seem to make sense of things, you are called to fix your eyes on this Jesus, who is, as chapter 12 will remind us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that is leading us, and he's not leading us in the future. He's leading us now through the wilderness. God does not play with his people like the Philadelphia Eagles play with footballs. He does not fumble. That was for you, Richard. You, dear ones, are in a wilderness wandering, but you have a Jesus who sympathizes with your weakness. He understands your suffering. Why? Because he himself suffered. He himself entered into the wilderness. Look back at chapter 2 for just a moment. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Do you realize that Jesus is testing his trials, his suffering by which he became the successful son who passed through the heavens. This Jesus identifies with you in your suffering. He sympathizes with you. He's been where you are. Now you may think, okay, I understand what you're saying, but how can this Jesus who was without sin possibly relate to my suffering? Doesn't the text tell us that he never sinned? Isn't he the spotless lamb of God? Isn't he the one that never gave in to the testings of the Satan himself in the wilderness? Yes, and guess what? That's exactly why he can relate to you. When does your testing get to its greatest intensity? Before or after you've given in to the temptation? The very reason why Jesus can fully sympathize with you and your suffering is precisely because he never gave in to it. He is one who fully identifies with you. During the late part of the 19th and into the early 20th century, we are, those of you who are aware of the, the mainline church, know how liberalism made its way into the mainline church. And liberalism, as it made its way into the mainline church, it taught us there couldn't be possibly any miracles. There certainly was no resurrection from the dead. And Jesus certainly was only a man. 
Well, as we looked at the pages of Scripture as the church of Jesus Christ, we reinforced our convictions that the church has held for two millennia that this Jesus Christ is fully God. He does do miracles. He is the one who was raised from the dead. (laughs) But unwittingly, I suppose, we, in our emphasis upon the deity of Christ, unintentionally downplayed his humanity. The scriptures lay before us a Jesus who is fully God, yes, but he is also fully man. He is fully flesh and blood. He sympathizes with us. He has walked in the wilderness and obeyed his heavenly father. This victor is also the sympathizer. The argument here is critical for us to understand. I think very often we suffer from what I like to call the tyranny of a tomorrow Jesus. We, we, we put deposits of faith into an account and think that maybe one day they'll pay off. We'll just struggle, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and and make it through this life gritting our teeth. The author of Hebrews is telling us, yes, if you believe Jesus is Savior, you must also believe that he is sympathizer. Or to put it more bluntly, if Jesus doesn't sympathize with you, he is not adequate to save you. Jesus, (laughs) Hebrews 13.8, is the same yesterday. Today and forever. My family and I served in Eastern Europe. When we moved to Bulgaria, my wife and I and our six children, we moved to the city of Sofia, Bulgaria. When I got off the airplane, I did not know any Bulgarian. I knew the alphabet, and that was it. We got settled through the help of some other missionaries there, and in the second week that we lived there, I was just beginning to learn the language two weeks in. I knew three words. (laughs) But we needed a vehicle. Where we lived, we needed a vehicle to to move around the city. So I began shopping for a vehicle. And in the city of two million in Sofia, Bulgaria, I found three vehicles. Not three models, but, but three vehicles that would hold a family of eight. We were a freak show there. For more reasons than that, I might add. But I found this vehicle, and one of the things you knew at that stage of living in post-communist Bulgaria is that every vehicle had all of the good parts taken out and the old parts put in. Secondly, you also knew that the odometer had been rolled back. You just didn't know how far. And one of the first things I saw when I looked at the dashboard of this vehicle was the hole in the dashboard that they had drilled out in order to roll the odometer back. (laughs) So you knew for certain when you bought a vehicle that it was going to break down, you just didn't know when. It didn't last long. A Couple days later, after I had gotten my cell phone, I was driving in a part of the city that I had never been. Now, if you know anything about Eastern Europe, you know that there is a major alcohol problem, 
And it appeared to me that this intersection was designed, where I found myself, was designed by drunken Bulgarians. I, I could make no sense of it. Multiple roads coming together, but there was this thing hanging from a wire that looked very, very much like a stoplight. Green, yellow, and red. So I stopped when it turned red. So did my vehicle. And it wouldn't start. The light turned green and people all around me were yelling, horns were blaring, and at that moment I was very, very glad that I did not understand Bulgarian. <laughs> I have no idea what they were saying. But I thought, well, what does a guy do in a situation like this? So I, having watched So You Want to Be a Millionaire, decided that I would pick up my phone and phone a friend. So I dialed another missionary in, in the city that had helped me get settled, and I, and I said, hey, listen, my vehicle is broken down, and I said, I really need some help. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, where are you? And I said, I don't know. And he said, and I quote, I'll pray for you, click. <laughs> then suddenly I heard this sound, ding, 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 louder and louder. The cars behind me spread out from the round behind me to the side, and suddenly there was a trolley right behind me. I was not only at this stoplight, I was sitting on top of a trolley track. Did you know that trolleys have horns? I never knew that, but I do now. He blared his horn, and I still could not get this vehicle going. Now think about that. I'm at an intersection with all kinds of storefronts and signs that would probably identify the street, but I couldn't read any of them. I'm surrounded by people, none of whom spoke my language. I've never had so much information and so many people and ever felt so alone. Perhaps tonight that's where you find yourself. You're surrounded by information. You can Google all the finds and searches that you want to try to get help in your particular situation. You have people speaking into your ear, maybe even well-intended people, but it's missing your very hearts, and you find yourself alone. The author of Hebrews reminds us we are never alone. For we have a Jesus who fully identifies with us, who sympathizes with us, who is in solidarity with us, and is our sympathizing Savior. He always speaks our language. His word is always living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword do you know that that particular passage is right before what we read? And it's in the context of being in the wilderness and longing for our future rest. And it says that word is adequate because Jesus is adequate. He is your sympathizing Savior, and he meets you where you are. The author of Hebrews wants you to know that Jesus is the victor. 
He is the one who has passed through the heavens. Hold fast your confession of him. But he is also the great sympathizer. He knows your weakness. He speaks your language. You are never alone. This event on that chaotic street came to an end when I was pushed off to the side of the road and some 45 minutes later, miraculously, my engine started running again. See, I'm here. (laughs) I made it home. Dear ones, no matter how alone you may feel, this victor, King Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, is your sympathizing Savior. This text reminds us, dear ones, that we can rest in this Jesus. At this week of Thanksgiving, I encourage you to Renew your faith, hold fast your confession of this victor who has passed through the heavens. Why? Not to go there alone so that he might lead you through the wilderness unto glory and he will not lose one of his own. But in the middle of the wilderness, he's also said, I promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus not only won't leave you, he can't. Because you, as his children, by grace through faith, belong to him. And he sympathizes with you in your wilderness wanderings. Verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. As mentioned earlier, I have three, well, six children, three boys and three girls. We go boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. And it is by virtue of that organization that I'm qualified at Westminster to teach systematic theology My three daughters, to celebrate the, the, the birthday of my middle daughter, just two weeks ago went out to Niagara Falls. Niagara is the second largest waterfall in the world. It's three waterfalls that make up one massive, overwhelming deluge of water, 750,000 gal- 750, gallons per second go over Niagara Falls. For those of you who are pulling out your iPhone to do the math, that is 64 billion, 800 million gallons per day. That's a lot of water. How often, as we think of the bounty of blessing that you have studied in these recent weeks in Ephesians chapter 1 of the, the bounty of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God pours out on his people. 
the bounty of provision of this victor who has passed through the heavens, this sympathizing son who lays before us this charge to go with confidence, to draw near to the throne of grace. Why do we go to the deluge of blessing with a Dixie cup? And wonder why we're thirsty. We are called as the people of God to not take a sip of the blessing, but to soak in it. To enjoy the bounty of God's provision that knows no end. It is for this reason the victor, Jesus, is described as one who is seated at the right hand of the Father where he lives ever to intercede for us. Even now, even tonight, he is taking his word by his spirit and applying it to your hearts, sealing it in your hearts now. This is what he does. And he urges us with confidence to go before the throne of grace. Did you ever think about the juxtaposition of those ideas? Throne and grace. In the history of the world, there has never been another throne that would be defined as a throne of grace. Thrones are places where kings reign, tyrants rule. Judgments are made, executions are established. It's not a place of grace. And yet, here we have the successful, sympathizing son who calls his people, for whom he is the victor, for whom he is the forerunner, for whom he is the sympathizer. And he says to us, come with confidence. Not confidence in our righteousness. It is as filthy rags. No, confidence in the bounty of Christ's provisions, the bounty of the victor that he did not receive for himself, he attained for you. And he will not not give them terrible grammar, great theology. Dear ones, We are called to rest in his victory, to rest in his sympathy, and to rest in his adequacy. King Jesus, the Son of God, who is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the sympathizing Son, comes to us with floods of blessing, and he calls us to repent of our Dixie Cup confessions. And to boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace for help in a time of need. Tonight, don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Look to the risen Jesus, who is our victor, who is our sympathizer, And who is your full adequacy? God be praised. Let's pray together.
Oh, great God in heaven, thank you for the bounty of your salvation in this Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the victor, that he is the sympathizer, that he is the all-sufficient Son of God. Forgive us for our weak faith, strengthen our weak knees, and grant us courage to boldly approach the throne of grace. Father, I know in this room tonight there are people with deep needs. You know those needs better than we know them. So we are called to trust you. So I pray, O oh God, that as we come around this table tonight, this table that represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for his people. I pray that you would nourish us, feed us, and strengthen us in the Son of God who has passed through the heavens. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.